Section 21 of London Labour and the London Poor, Volume 2, by Henry Mayhew. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Of the Street Jews Although my present inquiry relates to London life in London streets, it is necessary that I should briefly treat of the Jews generally as an integral but distinct and peculiar part of street life. That this ancient people were engaged in what may be called street traffic in the earlier ages of our history, as well as in the importation of spices, furs, fine leather, armour, drugs, and general merchandise, there can be no doubt. Nevertheless, concerning this part of the subject, there are but the most meagre accounts. Jews were settled in England as early as 730, and during the sway of the Saxon kings. They increased in number after the era of the conquest, but it was not until the rapacity to which they were exposed in the reign of Stephen had in a great measure exhausted itself, and until the measures of Henry the Second had given encouragement to commerce, and some degree of security to property in cities or congregated communities, that the Jews in England became numerous and wealthy. They then became active and enterprising attendants at fairs, where the greater portion of the internal trade of the kingdom was carried on, and especially the traffic in the more valuable commodities, such as plate, jewels, armour, cloths, wines, spices, horses, cattle, and so on. The agents of the great prelates and barons, and even of the ruling princes, purchased what they required at these fairs. St. Giles's Fair, held at St. Giles's Hill, not far from Winchester, continued sixteen days. The fair was, as it were, a temporary city. There were streets of tents in every direction, in which the traders offered and displayed their wares. During the continuance of the fair, business was strictly prohibited in Winchester, Southampton, and in every place within seven miles of St. Giles's Hill. Among the tent owners at such fairs were the Jews. At this period, the Jews may be considered as one of the bodies of merchant strangers, as they were called, settled in England for purposes of commerce. Among the other bodies of these strangers were the German merchants of the steelyard, the Lombards, the Caracini of Rome, the merchants of the staple, and others. These were all corporations, and thriving corporations, when unmolested, and the Jews had also their Jewry, or Judaism, not for a corporation merely, but also for the requirements of their faith and worship, and for their living together. The London Jewry was established in a place of which no vestige of its establishment now remains beyond the name, the Old Jewry. Here was erected the first synagogue of the Jews in England, which was defaced or demolished, Maitland states, by the citizens, after they had slain seven hundred Jews. Other accounts represent that number as greatly exaggerated. This took place in 1263, during one of the many disturbances in the uneasy reign of Henry III. All this time the Jews amassed wealth by trade and usury, in spite of their being plundered and maltreated by the princes and other potentates. Everyone has heard of King John's having a Jew's teeth drawn, and in spite of their being reviled by the priests and hated by the people. 
The sovereigns generally encouraged merchant strangers. When the city of London, in 1289, petitioned Edward I for the expulsion of all merchant strangers, that monarch answered, with all a monarch's peculiar regard for great men and great men only, No, the merchant strangers are useful and beneficial to the great men of the kingdom, and I will not expel them. But though the king encouraged, the people detested all foreign traders, though not with the same intensity as they detested and condemned the Jews, for in that detestation a strong religious feeling was an element. Of this dislike to the merchant strangers, very many instances might be cited, but I need give only one. In 1379, nearly a century after the banishment of the Jews, a Genoese merchant, a man of great wealth, petitioned Richard II for permission to deposit goods for safekeeping in Southampton Castle, promising to introduce so large a share of the commerce of the East into England that pepper should be fourpence a pound. Yet the Londoners, writes Walsingham, but in the quaint monkish Latin of the day, enemies to the prosperity of their country, hired assassins who murdered the merchant in the street. After this, what stranger will trust his person among a people so faithless and so cruel? Who will not dread our treachery and abhor our name? In 1290, by a decree of Edward I, the Jews were banished out of England. The causes assigned for this summary act were, quote, their extortions, their debasing and diminishing the coin, and for other crimes, end quote. I need not enter into the merits or demerits of the Jews of that age, but it is certain that any ridiculous charge, any which it was impossible could be true, was an excuse for the plundering of them at the hands of the rich, and the persecution of them at the hands of the people. At the period of this banishment, their number is represented by the contemporaneous historians to have been about 16,000, a number most probably exaggerated, as perhaps all statements of the numbers of a people are when no statistical knowledge has been acquired. During this period of their abode in England, the Jews were protected as the villains or bondsmen of the king, a protection disregarded by the commonalty, and only giving to the executive government greater facilities of extortion and oppression. In 1655, an Amsterdam Jew, Rabbi Manasseh ben Israel, whose name is still highly esteemed among his countrymen, addressed Cromwell on the behalf of the Jews that they should be readmitted into England with the sanction and under the protection of the law. Despite the absence of such sanction, they had resided and of course traded in this country, but in small numbers, and trading often in indirect and sometimes in contraband ways. Chaucer, writing in the days of Richard II, three reigns after their expulsion, speaks of Jews as living in England. It is reputed that, in the reigns of Elizabeth and the first James, they supplied at great profit the materials required by the alchemists for their experiments in the transmutation of metals. In Elizabeth's reign too, Jewish physicians were highly esteemed in England. The Queen at one time confided the care of her health to Rodrigo Lopez, a Hebrew who, however, was convicted of an attempt to poison his royal mistress. Francis I of France carried his opinion of Jewish medical skill to a great height. 
he refused on one occasion during an illness to be attended by the most eminent of the Israelitish physicians, because the learned man had just before been converted to Christianity. The most Christian king, therefore, applied to his ally, the Turkish sultan, Solomon II, who sent him a true hardened Jew, by whose directions Francis drank asses' milk, and recovered. Cromwell's response to the application of Manasseh bin Israel was favourable, but the opposition of the Puritans, and more especially of Prynne, prevented any public declaration on the subject. In 1656, however, the Jews began to arrive and establish themselves in England, but not until after the restoration of Charles II in 1660 could it be said that as a body they were settled in England. They arrived from time to time, and without any formal sanction being either granted or refused. One reason alleged at the time was that the Jews were well known to be money-lenders, and Charles and his courtiers were, as well known, money-borrowers. I now come to the character and establishment of the Jews in the capacity in which I have more especially to describe them, as street traders. There appears no reason to doubt that they commenced their principal street traffic, the collecting of old clothes, soon after their settlement in London. At any rate, the cry and calling of the Jew old clothesman were so established thirty or forty years after their return, or early in the last century, that one of them is delineated in Tempest's Cries of London, published about that period. In this work, the street Jew is represented as very different in his appearance to that which he presents in our day. Instead of merely a dingy bag hung empty over his arm or carried when partially or wholly filled on his shoulder, he is depicted as wearing, or rather carrying, three cocked hats, one over the other, upon his head. A muff with a scarf or large handkerchief over it is attached to his right hand and arm, and two dress swords occupy his left hand. The apparel which he himself wears is of the full-skirted style of the day, and his long hair, or periwig, descends to his shoulders. This difference in appearance, however, between the street Jew of 1700 and of a century and a half later, is simply the effect of circumstances, and indicates no change in the character of the man. Were it now the fashion for gentlemen to wear muffs, swords, and cocked hats, the Jew would again have them in his possession. During the 18th century, the popular feeling ran very high against the Jews, although to the masses they were almost strangers, except as men employed in the not very formidable occupation of collecting and vending second-hand clothes. The old feeling against them seems to have lingered among the English people, and their own greed, in many instances, engendering other and lawful causes of dislike, by their resorting to unlawful and debasing pursuits. They were considered, and with that exaggeration of belief dear to any ignorant community, as an entire people of misers, usurers, extortioners, receivers of stolen goods, cheats, brothel-keepers, sheriff's officers, clippers, and sweaters of the coin of the realm, gaming-house-keepers. In fine, the charges, or rather the accusations, of carrying on every disreputable trade, and none else, were bundled at their doors. 
that there was too much foundation for many of these accusations, and still is, no reasonable Jew can now deny. That the wholesale prejudice against them was absurd is equally indisputable. So strong was this popular feeling against the Israelites that it not only influenced and not only controlled the legislature, but it coerced the Houses of Parliament to repeal in 1754 an act which they had passed the previous session, and that act was merely to enable foreign Jews to be naturalised without being required to take the sacrament. It was at that time, and while the popular ferment was at its height, unsafe for a Hebrew old clothesman, however harmless a man, and however long and well known on his beat, to ply his street-calling openly, for he was often beaten and maltreated. Mobs, riots, pillagings, and attacks upon the houses of the Jews were frequent, and one of the favourite cries of the mob was certainly among the most preposterously stupid of any which ever tickled the ear and satisfied the mind of the ignorant. No Jews! No wooden shoes! Some mob leader, with a taste for rhyme, had, in this distich, cleverly blended the prejudice against the Jews with the easily excited but vague fears of a French invasion, which was in some strange way typified to the apprehensions of the vulgar as connected with slavery, popery, the compulsory wearing of wooden shoes, sabots, and the eating of frogs. And this sort of feeling was often revenged on the street Jew as a man mixed up with wooden shoes. Cumberland, in the comedy of The Jew, and sometime afterwards Miss Edgeworth, in the tale of Harrington and Ormond, and both at the request of Jews, wrote to moderate this rabid prejudice. In what estimation the street, and incidentally all classes of Jews, are held at the present time, will be seen in the course of my remarks, and in the narratives to be given. I may here observe, however, that among some, the dominant feeling against the Jews on account of their faith still flourishes, as is shown by the following statement. A gentleman of my acquaintance was one evening, about twilight, walking down Bridget Street, Covent Garden, when an elderly Jew was preceding him, apparently on his return from a day's work, as an old clothesman. His bag accidentally touched the bonnet of a dashing woman of the town, who was passing, and she turned round, abused the Jew, and spat at him, saying with an oath, "'You old rags humbug! You can't do that!' An allusion to a vulgar notion that Jews have been unable to do more than slobber since spitting on the Saviour. The number of Jews now in England is computed at 35,000. This is the result at which the chief rabbi arrived a few years ago after collecting all the statistical information at his command. Of these 35,000, more than one half, or about 18,000, reside in London. I am informed that there may now be a small increase to this population, but only small, for many Jews have emigrated, some to California. A few years ago, a circumstance mentioned in my account of the street sellers of jewellery, there were a number of Jews known as hawkers, or travellers, who traverse every part of England selling watches, gold and silver pencil cases, eyeglasses, and all the more portable descriptions of jewellery, 
as well as thermometers, barometers, telescopes, and microscopes. This trade is now little pursued, except by the stationary dealers, and the Jews who carried it on, and who were chiefly foreign Jews, have emigrated to America. The foreign Jews, who, though a fluctuating body, are always numerous in London, are included in the computation of 18,000. Of this population, two-thirds reside in the city, or the streets adjacent to the eastern boundaries of the city. Of the trades and localities of the street Jews. The trades which the Jews most affect, I was told by one of themselves, are those in which, as they describe it, there's a chance. That is, they prefer a trade in such commodity as is not subjected to a fixed price, so that there may be abundant scope for speculation, and something like a gambler's chance for profit or loss. In this way, Sir Walter Scott has said, trade has, quote, all the fascination of gambling without the moral guilt, end quote. But the absence of moral guilt in connection with such trading is certainly dubious. The wholesale trades in foreign commodities, which are now principally or solely in the hands of the Jews, often as importers and exporters, are watches and jewels, sponges, fruits, especially green fruits, such as oranges, lemons, grapes, walnuts, coconuts, and so on, and dates among dried fruits, shells, tortoises, parrots, and foreign birds, curiosities, ostrich feathers, snuffs, cigars, and pipes, but cigars far more extensively at one time. The localities in which these wholesale and retail traders reside are mostly at the East End. Indeed, the Jews of London, as a congregated body, have been, from the time when their numbers were sufficient to institute a settlement, or colony, peculiar to themselves, always resident in the eastern quarter of the metropolis. Of course, a wealthy Jew millionaire, merchant, stock-jobber, or stock-broker, resides where he pleases, in a villa near the Marquis of Hartford's in the Regent's Park, a mansion near the Duke of Wellington's in Piccadilly, a house and grounds at Clapham or Stanford Hill. But these are exceptions. The quarters of the Jews are not difficult to describe. The trading class in the capacity of shopkeepers, warehousemen, or manufacturers, are the thickest in Houndsditch, Aldgate, and the Minories, more especially as regards the swag shops and the manufacture and sale of wearing apparel. The wholesale dealers in fruit are in Duke's Place and Pudding Lane, Thames Street, but the superior retail Jew fruiterers, some of whose shops are remarkable for the beauty of their fruit, are in Cheapside, Oxford Street, Piccadilly, and, most of all, in Covent Garden Market. The inferior jewellers, some of whom deal with the first shops, are also at the East End, about Whitechapel, Bevis Marks, and Houndsditch. The wealthier goldsmiths and watchmakers, having, like other tradesmen of the class, their shops in the superior thoroughfares. The great congregation of working watchmakers is in Clerkenwell, but in that locality there are only a few Jews. The Hebrew dealers in second-hand garments and second-hand wares generally are located about Petticoat Lane, the peculiarities of which place I have lately described. 
the manufacturers of such things as cigars, pencils, and sealing wax, the wholesale importers of sponge, bristles, and toys, the dealers in quills and in looking-glasses, reside in large private looking-houses, when display is not needed for purposes of business, in such parts as Monsell Street, Great Prescott Street, Great Ailey Street, Lemon Street, and other parts of the eastern quarter known as Goodman's Fields. The wholesale dealers in foreign birds and shells, and in the many foreign things known as curiosities, reside in East Smithfield, Ratcliffe Highway, High Street, Shadwell, or in some of the parts adjacent to the Thames. In the long range of riverside streets stretching from the Tower to Poplar and Blackwall, are Jews who fulfil the many capacities of slop-sellers and so on, called into exercise by the requirements of seafaring people on their return from or commencement of a voyage. A few Jews keep boarding-houses for sailors in Shadwell and Wapping. Of the localities and abodes of the poorest of the Jews, I shall speak hereafter. Concerning the street trades pursued by the Jews, I believe there is not at present a single one of which they can be said to have a monopoly, nor in any one branch of the street traffic are there so many of the Jew traders as there were a few years back. This remarkable change is thus to be accounted for. Strange as the fact may appear, the Jew has been undersold in the streets, and he has been beaten on what might be called his own ground, the buying of old clothes. The Jew boys, and the feebler and elder Jews, had, until some twelve or fifteen years back, almost the monopoly of orange and lemon, street-selling, or street-hawking. The costermonger class had possession of the theatre doors and the approaches to the theatres. They had, too, occasionally their barrows full of oranges. But the Jews were the daily, assiduous, and itinerant street-sellers of this most popular of foreign, and perhaps of all, fruits. In their hopes of sale they followed any one a mile, if encouraged, even by a few approving glances. The great theatre of this traffic was in the stagecoach yards in such inns as the Bull and Mouth, St. Martin's Le Grand, the Belle Sauvage, Ludgate Hill, the Saracen's Head, Snow Hill, the Bull, Aldgate, the Swan with Two Necks, Ladlane City, the George and Blue Boar, Holborn, the White Horse, Fetter Lane, and other such places. They were seen, too, with all their eyes about them, as one informant expressed it, outside the inns where the coaches stopped to take up passengers, at the White Horse Cellar in Piccadilly, for instance, and the Angel, and the now-defunct Peacock in Islington. A commercial traveller told me that he could never leave town by any mail or stage without being besieged by a small army of Jew boys, who most pertinaciously offered him oranges, lemons, sponges, combs, pocket-books, pencils, sealing-wax, paper, many-bladed penknives, razors, pocket-mirrors, and shaving-boxes as if a man could not possibly quit the metropolis without requiring a stock of such commodities. In the whole of these trades, unless in some degree in sponges and black-lead pencils, the Jew is now outnumbered or displaced. 
I have before alluded to the underselling of the Jew boy by the Irish boy in the street orange trade, but the characteristics of the change are so peculiar that a further notice is necessary. It is curious to observe that the most assiduous and hitherto the most successful of street traders were supplanted not by a more persevering or more skilful body of street sellers, but simply by a more starving body. Some few years since, poor Irish people, and chiefly those connected with the culture of the land, came over to this country in great numbers, actuated either by vague hopes of bettering themselves by emigration, or working on the railways, or else influenced by the restlessness common to an impoverished people. These men, when unable to obtain employment, without scruple became street sellers. Not only did the adults resort to street traffic, generally in its simplest forms, such as hawking fruit, but the children by whom they were accompanied from Ireland in great numbers were put into the trade, and if two or three children earned twopence a day each, and their parents fivepence or sixpence each, or even fourpence, the subsistence of the family was better than they could obtain in the midst of the miseries of the southern and western part of the sister isle. An Irish boy of fourteen, having to support himself by street trade, as was often the case, owing to the death of parents and to diverse casualties, would undersell the Jew boys similarly circumstanced. The Irish boy could live harder than the Jew. Often in his own country he subsisted on a stolen turnip a day. He could lodge harder, lodge for a penny a night in any noisome den, or sleep in the open air, which is seldom done by the Jew boy. He could dispense with the use of shoes and stockings, a dispensation at which his rival in trade revolted. He drank only water, or if he took tea or coffee, it was as a meal, and not merely as a beverage. To crown the whole, the city-bred Jew boy required some evening recreation, the penny or tuppenny concert, or a game at draughts or dominoes. But this the Irish boy, country-bred, never thought of, for his sole luxury was a deep sleep, and being regardless or ignorant of all such recreations, he worked longer hours, and so sold more oranges than his Hebrew competitor. Thus, as the Munster or Connacht lad could live on less than the young denizen of Petticoat Lane, he could sell at smaller profit, and did so sell, until gradually the Hebrew youths were displaced by the Irish in the street orange trade. It is the same, or the same in a degree, with other street trades, which were at one time all but monopolised by the Jew adults. Among these were the street sale of spectacles and sponges, the prevalence of slop work and slop wages, and the frequent difficulty of obtaining properly remunerated employment, the pinch of want, in short, have driven many mechanics to street traffic, so that the numbers of street traffickers have been augmented, while no small portion of the newcomers have adopted the more knowing street avocations, formerly pursued only by the Jews. Of the other class of street traders who have interfered largely with the old clothes trade, which at one time people seemed to consider a sort of birthright among the Jews, I have already spoken, when treating of the dealings of the crockmen 
in bartering glass and crockery ware for second-hand apparel. These traders now obtain as many old clothes as the Jew clothesmen themselves, for with a great number of ladies, the offer of an ornament of glass or spar, or of a beautiful and fragrant plant, is more attractive than the offer of a small sum of money, for the purchase of the left-off garments of the family. The crockmen are usually strong and in the prime of youth or manhood, and are capable of carrying heavy burdens of glass or china wares for which the Jews are either incompetent or disinclined. Some of the Jews which have been thus displaced from the street traffic have emigrated to America with the assistance of their brethren. The principal street trades of the Jews are now in sponges, spectacles, combs, pencils, accordions, cakes, sweetmeats, drugs, and fruits of all kinds. But in all these trades, unless perhaps in drugs, they are in a minority compared with the Christian street sellers. There is not among the Jew street sellers generally anything of the concubinage or cohabitation common among the costermongers. Marriage is the rule. End of section 21